everybody. This is Aurea and welcome to Guerreras. In today's episode, we have Maricruz Osorio, a PhD student in the Department of Political Science at UC Riverside. Maricruz is a McNair Fellow, APSA, that stands for uh, American Political Science Association Fellow, and recipient of a Latino Fund Grant. Maricruz, welcome to Guerreras. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here. Aww. Thank you. So some of you that may be listening to our show may recognize Mari Cruz because she's a badass in the area of political science. I actually met her two years ago when we were both studying at the University of Michigan's Inter-University Consortium of Political and Social Research. And for short, that is ICPSR, is essentially math camp for PhD students. And we were there. I was there for just four weeks. You were there, Mari Cruz, for uh, eight. We were there for yeah. the whole session. And honestly, Maricruz, we both, and one of our friends, Leonor, actually, Doctora Leonor Camarena, we were students Yay. at, I know, congratulations to Leonor, shout out to her, because Latinas in the PhDs account for less than 2% of all PhD and graduate students. So the fact that we have a Doctora in our squad, that is amazing. Um, such a badass. That, that's such a badass. And also, Maricruz, that is on your route because you do amazing research. And that's essentially why I wanted to have you here in the Guerreras podcast because it is important not only to hear about research and politics, but knowing that there's a Latina studying Latinas, right? The importance of somebody that understands our story and is trying to tell it in the best way possible. So, Maricruz, you are amazing. And yes, I am going to tell you all about what Maricruz's research is. Don't get Maricruz's research asks why do some immigrants and women in particular with different statuses, DACA, undocumented, asylum seekers, and refugees, engage in risky political behavior? And by risky or the uncertainty of the outcome, there doesn't appear to have uh, the same repercussions, right? That is what you mentioned on your research across mm -hmm. different citizenship status. Now, this is part of Maricruz's dissertation. And that means that in a couple of years, we're going to be able to call her doctora and have her as a guest. And so she can tell me about all the incredible things that she has done and has already done. I know you're one of the busiest people I know. But Maricruz, I really want you to share with us about your work, um, about what inspired you to choose this as your area of research and you know, there's got to be more questions down the way, but really explain to us where did this question come about? Uh, yeah, so it was quite a journey. Um, I think I started my quest as a political scientist in 2008, mm. um, and I was too young to vote. I was shy just a couple of months, but I knew that I wanted to study uh, like racial politics, You know, because everyone would like, I don't know if people remember, but in 2008, everyone's like, oh, Obama's going to win because he's black enough. Or no, he's going to win because he's white enough. Or it's, he's going to win because of like this particular composition of his race, racial background or whatever. He's Hawaiian, he's Muslim, like all of the youth conversations that to me seems like in my young high school mind is like utter bullshit, right? And like still, you know, probably not, not the most productive use of our time to have conversations. You know, he won because he was qualified. So that, that started me off on this track of like rep, uh, race, ethnicity, politics track. But I also was like in love with international relations. Like all throughout my undergraduate career, I called it my first love. Like 
It's my love. Like, it's my one true love. That's what I used to call it. I used to call IR my one true love. And so when I applied to graduate school, I said, well, there's not a lot of race in international relations, and I want to be able to bridge the gap between international relations and race and ethnicity politics. Just naturally happened to unfold into immigration. Um, that's kind of like the perfect marriage of those two interests uh, in my mind. So that's how I got interested in immigration. And of course, like my parents are immigrants, right? I still remember the 2006 marches, the white shirts that we all wore in high school when we walked out. And then I started grad school in 2016 and I don't need to tell anyone what happened that year. Uh, so <laughs> immigration just seemed to be like the perfect place for all of my interests, personal and academic to kind of coalesce into one thing together. And this particular question came out out of um, some field work that I was doing for my one of my co-chairs for my dissertation committee, Francisco Pedraza. He sent me out to Texas and he had me go around in the Inland Empire and ask a whole bunch of uh, engagement questions to immigrant communities. And there was just this woman in particular whose story blew me away. She's an undocumented mother. She has her husband. They're both undocumented. They're living just a couple of blocks away from a detention center. There's gang violence. There's all sorts of problems in her community. But she is one of the most active people I know uh, politically. She'll go where she knows that there will be retenes, uh, which are like immigration checkpoints. Mm -hmm. um, and she'll hold signs with her children in her car with her telling other immigrants to go back to turn around that there's a checkpoint coming and it blows my mind right this woman <laughs> with her children with her is risking so much right she's risking deportation but she's also risking other bodily harm mm -hmm. to warn other people in her community uh to not have to undergo those risks, right? And she does a whole bunch of other things. She's like, she creates potlucks and fundraisers for her community. She, she, she's, she just like blows me away. But none of the measures that we have um, around political participation would say that she's politically active. She can't, she can't vote. She doesn't donate money to any political campaign, right? She, she doesn't knock on doors. Right. Uh, she's just got kids. Um, Right. So she doesn't do any of these traditional political participation measures. And, and then and yet I can't think of a person who is more engaged and informed in politics than her. When I interviewed her, she said, well, I may not be able to vote, but my my children will certainly remember what this presidency has done. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that they will vote when they come of age. Right. And then in that same policy report, just a city over. I introduced a single mother and she did not participate because she went to the same fast food restaurants as border patrol agents, right? Like she would see them. Mm -hmm. So even going to like a McDonald's or a Burger King is dangerous for her. She feels at risk in those places, right? Yeah. So she still also has to have a pretty comprehensive level of political knowledge, right? Mm -hmm. um, what are the things that I have to navigate to be able to get my burger and fries safely? 
So that's kind of how this question arose, right? Like some of these very mundane, simple things are risky for some of the most vulnerable in our communities. And yet some of them, like a fraction of them, are engaging in such important and potent ways. And we just have no way, no way of capturing that. Mm. Um, so that's, that's kind of the background. It's a long background, but I think an important step, I think. No, absolutely. And the fact that just like you mentioned, and I know there is a reading on the Latina advantage, right? And like political success and Latina yes. identity. And uh, for everybody listening, you know, both Maricruz and I are both scholars. So, and these are things that we have both not only read, but researched, asked about. Um, we find that women of color engage in political, politically risky behavior. And that is more than just protesting. It means like Maricruz just mentioned, like you just mentioned, it's about saying to your community, there's a checkpoint in a couple blocks or in a mile away. It means uh, standing up to your boss when maybe you're a, like a low wage worker. It means putting yourself and your family at risk of losing a pay. Like there's so much that is politically risky behavior that some that have always had access to a political advantage don't understand. And by that, it's like, if you never thought about what it's like to lose your right to vote, you have a political advantage. If you're not scared of uh, getting a DUI that would potentially get you deported, you have a political advantage. All these things that minorities and people of color and women more than anything understand that we need to navigate way differently than other people in this country. Maricruz, no, this is amazing. And thank you for sharing that because I know it's, it's work. It is work that you are creating and it is, you're studying us. And that for me, it's the most, it makes me feel so valued and reassured to know that the person that is writing about my story and other hermanas, other women, is another woman. Like, you know our story because you've either heard it or you've lived it. And yeah. I know you're also pretty active, like as an activist as well, you get very involved uh, with your community. So let me ask you, why did you choose to study women and their political, like, what was it about studying women, immigrant women, that you just knew, like, you couldn't move away from that variable? So I think a large part of it has to be the family that I grew up in. My grandfather, who was my idol, he's been my screensaver since he passed. Um, like, I love him. I think about him every day. He was very active in El Ejido that he lived like there was a little village like a little farming community and he was very politically active but literally no one else was my mom was going to study social sciences but didn't so the interest has always kind of been there in my family because of my grandfather for me but I didn't see it reflected in my family in the women in my family so I wondered if it was that I was just focusing on these traditional views, right, of engagement. Mm -hmm. So I think that that's part of it. Another part of it is like just having eyes. <laughs> so I went once, I've been to a couple, but there was this one DACA rally in Riverside. It was all women speakers. The uh, California assembly woman who was speaking there, a woman, all of the rally speakers 
almost all, there was one man who spoke, but all women, like when I took a picture, all the people up on the, on the, on the steps were mostly women, right? And of course, and you know that the DACA chant, like um, undocumented, unafraid. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you as someone who was there, I was very afraid. And I'm a US born citizen, mm-hmm. uh, right? So what gave women this courage, this absolute courage? Um, and of course there's the, so I call this woman, the, the, the story about the woman in the checkpoint, I call her Clara in all of the, my writings. Right, like at that point, I had already interviewed her. Of course, there's the squad, right? <laughs> that's more recent, right? Like that has just solidified my interest. I think that there's a lot of untold stories that anyone with eyes can see as political participation and engagement, but it's hardly ever reflected in the literature with some very strong exceptions, right? Of course, there are exceptions and I would have nothing to build my work on if there weren't other amazing Latinas out there working on this too. But I think I should give them a hand and add to the literature about this. And I will just make a quick note that this is about immigrants like generally, but yes, Latinas as well, Latina immigrants, but also I'm interested in the wide spectrum of immigrants. That, and that is also needed like you mentioned, like undocumented and unafraid, the movement is also being led by youth, youth that are trying to protect their families, the families of millions of others that at a moment's notice in a freaking tantrum of the 45th could completely lose their whole lives. They could go to a country that maybe they've never been to. I feel that the research that you create is so incredibly needed because it brings humanity back into those stories when the media is pervasive about dehumanizing the immigrant story that only immigrants can look a certain way or come from a certain background when that is not true right there the immigrant story begins at the desire of fulfilling a dream wherever your country that you want to call home is whichever one that is you deserve that you deserve that opportunity for yourself and your family and that the immigrant experience is becoming weaponized as a way to scare other people, as a way of creating fear, that only becomes that only becomes more terrifying for those who are being weaponized against themselves. Because that's what I'm thinking. I look at these marches where the youth are leading it, and I fear that someone out there will try and harm the youth that are that is trying to move us forward. And then the story, these stories that you are telling, the only way we're going to know about them is because somebody out there cares. And the media won't necessarily do that. They won't show us the truth. So I really thank you for taking this on and, be, and being like a speaker on, on this. For saying that. Maricruz, we were just talking about finding community in academia. So let's talk about uh, gender in academia, being a woman in academia. What has that experience been like right because the latin experience is one thing latinx experiences and it's one in its own but what about gendered representation what about what you have faced in academia based on gender so this is a difficult topic right because wow so much is happening in in our in our time right not only do we have these anti-racist movements finally taking the momentum that they should have had a long time ago but We also have the Me Too movement, and that has also been picking up speed. And I mentioned earlier that we are not exempt from all of the oppressive 
identity politics that outside the world, quote unquote, right, has. And I think sexism and sexual harassment and all of that is a problem in academia. And I can speak for rep that there should be some feelings of shame among those higher up in the discipline. Graduate women have whisper networks in rep about like, don't talk to that guy. Don't talk to that faculty. Like, don't ever be alone with him. And nothing is ever done. And there should be some shame about that because these men are allowed to teach vulnerable undergrads. They're finding jobs. They're continuing abusive behavior. And that's really difficult because then we, I feel some guilt right, that I'm not able to name names, and I have to rely, right, I have been protected by whisper networks, but we're never really allowed to reveal who they are in order to protect the original victim of harassment. And when we talk about these things, the conversations that revolve around it are not productive, and that should be shameful. And I don't think that it's just a rep politic specific problem. I heard about it in other subdisciplines, but that makes this whole process a lot harder. And that's a real shame. We should have some solidarity. We should know better, but we don't. Um, And when we saw the Kavanaugh hearings, right, like these women who are so, so wicked smart are being subjected to all of this trauma and yet no change comes from it. That's a lot of what it's like to be a woman in political science, right? If you've been subjected to some sort of harassment, you tell your stories and you see nothing come of it. It's really damaging. How much of our energy is wasted dealing on that, that I could be spending on my research, but instead has to be spent on these whisper networks to protect one another. And that poses some real problems. And this is a conversation that I've had with other colleagues, right? That whisper networks only work if you're in the network. So if you're not lucky enough to know people in the know, let's say you're at a lower tier institution, so you're not invited to these like after parties, then you don't get to know who is dangerous. Thankfully, there, there are some women out there who are working on rectifying that. And maybe there are some men, but I just don't know of very many men who are working on this. And I think that is a problem. So that's something that we need a lot more work on, I think, than we have given it. And again, not just specific to race and city politics, but it's definitely a problem, right? And that bro behavior, like, I mean, Ariel, you know me. You know I like to go out and have a good time. So, like, I don't feel particularly excluded when these group gatherings happen, but they definitely do exclude some other people. And to say that valuable mentorship and opportunities don't come out of these, like, social gatherings is false. I know because I I go to them and maybe now I won't be invited to them and uh, that's fine. I'll find another group to hang out with and party with, but you know, like I'm not short on friends. It's a problem. Yeah. And like you mentioned, like sexual harassment in academia is not new. Absolutely not. It's not new. It is something that, like you said, if we are not part of the whisper network or we don't have somebody that comes to tell us like, Hey, do not be close to that man or that woman. Like we wouldn't know how to survive. And honestly, like what you're mentioning Some people should really be ashamed that they allow this kind of behavior to continue within the departments. Because we all know that one person, that one faculty member, that one graduate student, that you know when they're hunting. Yeah. You know when they're hunting prey. I have been in those situations where I reach out to the woman and I'm like, hey, let's hang out. Let's have a talk. And I know you have also done that with me. 
you have also taken care of me in those situations. How is it still possible that violence against women when it comes to like sexual harassment is something that is allowed at spaces in all spaces, right? When we think about violence against women as an afterthought, we don't really consider it something that should take space or energy and in people's heads, but it takes space and energy in our survival as women. Yeah. Others assume that, uh, well, it's, you should not be doing this. Then I was like, well, it's not my fault. It's not my fault that I'm being hunted by a faculty member. It's not my fault that I'm being hunted by a graduate student. I did not bring that upon myself. The blame here is on them. And how do their colleagues allow them to continue with such behavior? And you and I know about things going down in the political science world that when a woman stood up to name her abuser until she got tenure. Yes. Because she knew that if she spoke before it, so mm -hmm. she waited until she was a tenured faculty member at a great university because she knew only then would she not lose her job. That's the risky behavior other people don't think about. It's like, well, why didn't yep. you say so sooner? It's like, well, I'm sorry. I would have lost my job, my reputation, my access to different networks, my research, if I would have called out my abuser before. And that is not her fault. It is because of how the institutions in the White Ivory Tower is built. It is built on yep. the back of women is built on the back of people of color. We know of so many of these stories. We are the people that we need to also, we need to keep those stories safe because we don't know where the other person is in this moment when it's happening. We don't know what could happen if the story got out. And all the best we can do is offer support. But then it, it also, like you said, like it's- It's maddening. It's, yeah. And the other male colleagues who know of this like toxic behavior are still friends with them, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Like, they're like, oh, I don't condone his behavior on X, but I'm still going to be his friend. Like, I'm still going to go out drinks for him with him. Like, you know, all of these things. And when I say, well, I'm not comfortable with that, so I'm not going to go anymore. They're like, well, why are you making us choose between them them and you? Like, I'm going to choose the person who's not making me choose. And I'm like, you're putting me in a pretty terrible position here. Like, either I have to spend time with a terrible person who I know is a sexual harasser or forsake all of my friends. You, I don't need to tell you what decision I made. Right. Right. But, but you know, like those are the positions that were put in. Right. So it makes sense that some women wait until they're tenured before they speak out. It's absolutely insane. And I will say this to the credit of some of the grad student women that I know who are like, wow, just rocking the boat on so many issues, right? Like Sophie Hill at Harvard, Anna Meyer, Wisconsin-Madison, Rachel Torres, like mm -hmm. these women are graduate students and they're pushing the envelope for what is right. And I just think it's inspirational. Like, wow, way to kick butt, ladies. Honestly, that's allyship as well with, amongst women. Because I think that is also something that we need to call out is that we don't, need, we don't only need male allies when we talk about sexual harassment or racism or ableism, ageism, the isms within academia, we also need women to be our allies when these things happen, because more likely than not, it is women who are telling us that we are doing this the wrong way. We should stay quiet, that we shouldn't rock the boat. And it's only very few women that say, you know what, I'm here with you. I'm supporting you. How can I do that? Yeah. I think that's a conversation that as women, we, we need to call a, a, a low meeting and say, hey, that we cannot be oppressing the other. Cannot be complicit in our own oppression. No, no, no. <laughs> Come on. Like, open a book. We know better. 
like out of the things that I don't know better, this is one of the things that I do know better, right? Like, That's good. Like out of the things, I'm pretty sure I know my shit on this. Yeah. I know what I'm talking about. And it's so difficult to navigate that. I know in my instances, the first people that I turn to when I'm, when I'm upset, when I'm hurt are women. And to hear other women say like, well, look, based on your experiences, I think that it's best if you stay quiet for now until you talk to this person, you don't want to, you know, get in trouble for this. I'm like, wait a minute, why am I going to get in trouble when I'm telling the truth? Why are my friends forcing me to choose between a predator and my own well-being for their sake of a friendship? or our departments stay quiet or the rest of your five years in graduate school are going to be a living hell. I don't understand. Like, again, I cannot say enough good things about the faculty in my department because they have never made me put that choice on me. Right. They have always been like, whatever you need. Um, but there's problems because I can never use names. I can never say exactly what happened, right? Because mandated reporters, they're my teachers, they're my faculty, right? So I can't actually share things with them, but they know that I'm having my no poker face. <laughs> the one thing that maybe I would change about me, right, is maybe being able to hide some stuff. But whenever I'm having a hard time, I've been lucky enough to have a department who's been like, whatever you need support with, we support you. And I think that that's why I can be right here right now on your podcast and say, everyone else should be ashamed. Like, shame <laughs> on you. Pull them out. And this is not to say that there aren't some great faculty out there, too. I think of St. Hutchings, okay. right, in rep and race politics. That is, I've never met a student of his that didn't act with complete decorum. And so I think that that's special, too, right? Like, modeling that kind of good behavior. And I'm sure that there are others, but... Right now, I just saw that Dr. Hutchings got like this super prestigious award. So he's on my mind. Yeah, that, yeah, but that's like you said, like it's when you model the behavior, your students, especially as graduate students, we spend so much time with faculty. We are really being socialized by them and how they act with, with others, how they act with colleagues, how they act with students. I know so many of us have a, a professor that we're like, I want to be like her or I want to be like him when yeah. I'm at their position. I know shout out to Lori Weber from Chico State that she really took me under her wing uh, when I was at um, Chico State for my master's. She taught me all that it is to be somebody that cares about her students. She was a professor. She is the professor of survey methodology at Chico State and she treats every single student with dignity. She sits down with them. She has the patience and she's a strong advocate for every single woman that comes to the department. Like whatever you need. And she will tell you what has happened. She will guide you. And not a lot of people have that experience or access to mentors like that, that are able to demonstrate to them what academia can be like, what it should yeah. be. Um, yeah. And here I like props to Nadia Brown. Wow. Like take a look at that amazing lady. Like she finds a way to mentor everyone. She just blows me away. For all of the things that are wrong, there are also all of these amazing women who teach us how to do it right. <laughs> so it's not like we don't have good role models. We have plenty. Jane Jun, Jessica Lavariega. Like, maybe it's time to just shift who we idolize a little. Absolutely. Women, we have been making these moves for generations. And it's about time, about damn time that we are in these positions so we can uplift the voices of other women, of other students, or other members in the movement who want to be able to lead. Women lead differently with heart 
What it means to lead with heart is that you understand how difficult leading can be. You you humanize the people that you are leading. You humanize the movement. You humanize the impact that this may have. You are able to constructively understand the, the things that you have to do in order to succeed and how things may fail. That's what leading with heart is, leading with vulnerability. And that is the humanity that a lot of us are probably looking for. I know I look for when I'm seeking mentors is, are you leading with a purpose that goes beyond yourself? That's what leading with heart is. And I know women like you do that. And a lot of our mentors do that. So I appreciate you. I'm glad that you brought this up because this is like a major theory component um, in my dissertation. So it's not that women are just like biologically more inclined to engage in risky behavior. No, I think that it's that women are just socialized, right, to think more about their community and their caretaking responsibilities and then therefore see the need to act more than men. Women are, are taught to think more collectively, while men are allowed to think more individualistically, right? So when immigrants assess the risk, my theory, they, they have to go through like a first risk assessment. Is this a risk to me or is this a risk to my community? So those who feel like there's more risk to their community are going to act, right? We know from so many different parts of political science literature that the moment that you sense risk or some sort of cost to your community, whether it be your country, you're much more likely to have strong political views and attitudes and therefore act than when you are just worried about yourself. So it's, this, doesn't, this doesn't say that men are not also able to think about their community or act for their community. It just means that women are just socialized a little differently to think about their community first. And we just have more exposure to more institutions. That's such a great way to put it. We just have more access to different institutions and we have also been socialized very differently, very, very differently, which allows us to think in, in a collective manner. And that is something that comes up also when we study race and ethnicity, how some cultures are more collectivist than individualistic. And usually minority groups think about the community first before the needs of the individual is always thinking about us, not about you. And that can be toxic at one point, right? Because a lot of us grow up with the idea that we cannot make decisions if it affects our community. That is actually one of the things that I research is Latina women are, when they have to co-sponsor a bill that's either the women's agenda and the Latinx agenda, which one are they going to choose and why? And more likely than not, they choose a Latinx agenda bill because they feel that, that they are going to receive a huge repercussion from the Latinx constituents more than women, because they assume that like women don't really speak for the Latinx experience because it doesn't speak to the Latina experience. And that is from the history of the first and second wave feminist movements that were just predominantly for white women. So yes, feminism is about all women and should be about all women. If your feminism isn't intersectional, it ain't feminism. And those constructs go to the psychology of even women in high offices. Okay, so you're in race, ethnicity, politics, REP. Have you seen similar like takes on studying immigration status and political behavior? Have you seen maybe different ways of measuring that? I know not all scholars do the same thing. We usually use the same metric, but don't come to the same conclusion. Have you seen at least an interest on sharing the immigrant story in scholarship? Yeah, there's a lot of great, interesting work out there. There are some books on my bookshelf that I, I recently bought and I haven't been able to read because I've been prepping for my class. I have like a thousand books. 
American while Black, African-Americans immigration and the limits of citizenship, right? So I'm really excited to read about that. Um, uh, it's essentially how Black, African-American pu public opinion matters for immigration um, and how we've been in this fight together for longer than we realize. Uh, of course, there's like illegal by Elizabeth Cohen's what I'm, I'm reading and teaching. So like right off the top of my mind, it's a great book. She also has other great, great books. So that's the one I'm teaching. So that's the first one. Anything that comes out of Cristina Bejarano's mind is gold. Yes, I, Cristina, I just, we love you. I think she's like the first professor that I knew well enough to be intimidated by, if that makes any sense. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, you know, because I'm first gen. When I came into grad school, I didn't know anything. I didn't know any, like, who I should be intimidated by or who I should be nervous by. So I just came in and was like, hey, what's up? Um, how you doing? Without knowing, I was talking to some, like, premier, like, elite scholars. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's great work out there. But I don't think that there's much work out there that's looking at citizenship status and risk together. Okay. So let's move on to that research, not ha not enough of this research being created and also finding solidarity and support as an academic, as a Latina in grad school. You and I met each other at a race and ethnicity politics class at Michigan. You, Leonor, and myself were three out of the four Latinas in that class for four weeks. And... We literally only had each other for four weeks to support one another, right? On um, what it was, it's studying, one, studying Latinas. My research is in Latinas in Congress and Latinas political behavior in high office. And I was trying to talk to people about it. And they're like, so you study immigration. I'm like, that is not the only fucking thing we can study. Immigration is important, but it's not the only thing to the Latina identity that I study. Leonor was studying public administration and the importance of like understanding the gender spectrum in public administration. You are studying a political behavior of immigrants and women. These are such powerful topics, but we only had each other to support one another during those weeks. And honestly, you, so you started your PhD in 2016. I started my master's in 2016. And nobody in my family, you're first gen, nobody in my family had gone to the has gone to a university in the US. So I had no idea what graduate school was like in America. And out of nowhere, I got put into PhD classes with people like you, where I was like, I have no clue to, how to code, but my professors thought it was good enough for me to be here. And I don't think I'm good enough. And the whole imposter syndrome, that is complete bullshit because women, we end up being the leaders in these conversations. So shout out to all the women out there that are leading movements in academia, that are department chairs, that are chairs in like dissertation committees that are the ones that know how hard it is to get to those spots. And that's why, Maricruz, I want you to talk about your story. How did you find community and academia to study these topics? Because it's very isolating. I know that from personal experience, not only to study immigration, REP, Latinas, like all these topics that are so personal for us because the personal is political. I know you're heavily involved in organizations like people of color also know stuff women also know stuff and you really help scholars like me or up-and-coming scholars to find their community you and i are in a group chat that goes off every day when we're talking about the news or we're talking about some new article that came out talk to us baby about pictures your, 
Oh my goodness, the memes that come through on that group chat, honestly, but it's a saving grace because we know yeah. that we have those those group chats are from students from all over the country. But what mm -hmm. keeps us together is the fact that we all know that we are our support system as first gen, as Latinx students, as students studying Latinidades, etc. in political science. My question really is talk to us about your journey into political science and how you found your community within it. I think about this all the time. So I actually, on Friday, so just two days ago, I gave a talk to a bunch of McNairs in Illinois. The Illinois Trio McNair statewide program um, had a scholar circles and they invited me to come in to talk about exactly this. They asked me to come in to talk about identity and resiliency. And that's because I have stories. <laughs> I have a lot to say. So I, I have to go back to undergrad for this. Those experiences were very formative. It's important to first acknowledge that academia, like any institution, is racist, it's sexist, it's ableist, it's all of the isms that we know other institutions are. Like, we are not exempt. Um, and to believe that is kind of like a bless your heart kind of moment. Like, I'm not from the <laughs> South, but <laughs> bless your heart. And so I didn't know that. Like, I've just never known better. Um, I always had to learn the hard way. So in undergrad, I, I was international relations and I was taking all of these political science classes and I wanted to do what I have always wanted to do. I wanted to bridge rep and IR to like, and I wanted to make them one, right? Like in order to understand international relations, you have to understand race relations. And it just wasn't happening. My department supported me, but didn't think I belonged in political science. When I said I was interested in race, they're like, well, you should be in Africana studies, or maybe you should go into gender studies, or maybe you should go into history. Your questions are not political science. And I'm like, okay. how is race not part of politics? And maybe they've changed since I've been there because it's been a while. I had to kind of forge my own way. And I found solidarity with ed education majors. My, my best friend was an ed major. My other best friends were psychology, econ, and we kind of had to create our own community there too, right? Because I knew that in political science classes, I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna get the type of mentorship that I needed for my research questions. I got plenty of mentorship and help in other ways. For my research and intellectual growth, I did need to rely on other people heavily. And I don't think that that was a particular loss. I mean, I went to a small liberal arts school. I went to Knox College. And that was part of the, the things that I'm most thankful for. It's that interdisciplinary kind of perspective. And I think it's been very helpful now. But, but there was something about being told, this is not a political science question, mm -hmm. that, you know, when somebody tells you not to do something, so then you're like, I'm going to do that thing. Speaking like a true Capricorn, Marie Cruz. I know, I know, I am so stubborn. I am so stubborn. But again, I don't see it as a fault, you know, like it's helped me along this journey. And I chose a program that I thought would best support me. UC Riverside has a strong concentration in race ethnicity politics. And faculty wise, it has been the perfect department for me. I love the faculty there. They've all been amazing and supportive. 
a shout out to my chairs, Francisco Pedraza and Jen Marola. Like I could not say enough things, enough good things about them. Like I could open dictionaries and still not have enough words um, to thank them. But it was still very hard to find a community there. I think being a Latina in political science in 2016, it was just unfortunate, right? Because I was the butt of a lot of jokes that I did not think were funny. You're gonna get deported. You're not American enough. You're such a stereotypical Latina. It was my first year, so I was being introduced to a lot of people and, and somebody thought it was appropriate to, to introduce me being like, oh, look, guy, like, let's call him Bob. Mm-hmm. Hey, look, Bob, uh, here's the Latina for you to date. I know you like Latinas, here's one for you. And that's how I was introduced at parties. Yeah, it was like gross. So I didn't really have a strong community with my cohort or, or my department. Mm-hmm. And thank God for Danielle Lemmy, because she was at UCR when I was starting, she was finishing. And she and I got together and she's, Jesus, she's amazing. And that, and we formed people of color also know. At that time, when we, we, we took over, it was nothing more than just like an empty Twitter handle. Right. But we, we propped it up into what it is today. And through people of color also know, was inspired by women, of, women also know stuff. I formed this community that I have today, but it took a lot of pain. Like it was like, I did it the hard way. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's why I invest so much time in mentorship and all of this kind of service work because, you know, if it hadn't been for Francisco telling me my first quarter, I don't know what he saw. I never said anything to anyone about how I was being treated. He's, we were leaving an uh, immigration research group meeting and he told me like, you're going to experience a lot of things and you, you're going to have to decide if you want to put up with all of the racist things that are going to come your way or not. But if you do, I'll be here to support you. And I don't know what he saw, what my face, you know, you know, my face, like I have a very expressive face. I was not having a good time. If it hadn't been for Francisco reaching out like that, my first quarter, I would have dropped out. But he reached out and he supported me. And then through Jen's mentorship, like I felt supported enough by faculty that I went out and I stayed and then went out to create community of peers. And part of that was also Preek, Politics of Race, Immigration, Ethnicity Consortium. It's, it's a small conference that focuses on race and, and brings scholars from all over. So if it hadn't been for those two things, probably couldn't have formed my the community that I have now. But that's a long answer, but... No, that is not a long answer, Maricruz. It's thanks to you that I have made some of the best friendships in within political science. And I mean, you and I have talked about our horror stories without, within political science departments. You know, in mine, I know I talked to you about the fact that my first semester, actually my first year, second semester of my master's, I was taking a political theory class. And we were talking about like, immigration latinos and the professor turned next to me he's like what is your take on immigration and i looked at him and i was like why are you asking me and i said it in class and he's just like well you're latina you're probably an immigrant right and in front of the whole seminar 
No, yeah. take it, the whole seminar is like 12 people, right? Because that's how big like graduate classes are. But I had not shared with anybody my citizenship status. I became a citizen when I was 18. I had never shared the, the process and nothing. Me, my story about becoming a citizen is very personal. It's very vulnerable. And mm-hmm. this person just took it upon themselves to assume and to force me to share something in under the idea of political and intellectual knowledge, right? That is a one very small way of, of sharing the microaggressions within political science. The other one was being in political spaces and people telling me, well, studying Latinas is not important enough for a political science department. Like unless you're studying immigration or all Latinos, that would not be considered political science. I'm like, yeah. well, what do you mean that Latinas aren't considered political science? Like I'm, yeah, I'm not gonna yeah. go to a women's studies class because that's not what I'm studying right? Like I'm studying gender, I'm studying race, I'm studying intersectionality of political behavior. And they're like, no, maybe you should go to a women's studies class. Maybe they should just wait until you ask for their opinion. Yeah, I'm just like, I'm sorry, I forget when I asked you to tell me that. Um, (laughs) And, uh, you know, if it wasn't for spaces like people of color also know stuff and women of uh, women also know stuff. I wouldn't have the community that says like, hell yeah, you go out there and study that. And you, you're one of the persons that's wearing like all the pins at the conference, like ask me questions about this. You want to know about that. But it was really because of you. And you introduced me to one of my shiros, Ana Sampaio. Oh, yes. We love a feminist theorist. We love a Latina and Scott, like, in academia what about another brilliant mind another brilliant mind you're just like am in awe of her presence even if it wasn't zoom i think it's for a lot of the guerreras listening they can even if they're not in the scholarship or academia world finding community to be able to find your political voice is vital for our survival if we do not find our support group the other hermanas in the movement or brothers in the movement that can support us when we are trying to achieve something as monumental as sharing stories through mm-hmm. academia, because sometimes that is the only way to be seen as viable, as like a recognizable story. And it's unfortunate because our voices should just matter. And when people listen to us, they should believe us. It helps when an academic says, no, yeah, by the way, 13% of Latinas are involved in this kind of political behavior. Maybe we should like help them. One of the most important things that I want people to take away is how important it is to find your voice in whatever space you are in. Maricruz, how do you find your voice when it comes to being involved in political science departments, when it comes to being involved in this kind of research? How do you do it? How do you find it? I didn't come in with a lot of ego. Mm-hmm. I, I came in with a lot, like a lot of willingness to learn, but also a lot of willingness to help and to offer ideas. And that is such a difficult space to navigate, I think, for most people. Yeah, somehow I managed to do it naturally. Um, one thing one thing I am not is humble. <laughs> <laughs> Why be humble when you know it, Maricruz? Why be humble when you know it? I, th- I think that the only way that you can really be successful and happy with yourself is if you come in being true to yourself. And I think being true to yourself also means being uh, okay with growth. I have evolved from my first year, right? Like I have evolved from my first year and my second year and my third year, right? Like it's a constant evolution. And if you're okay with that evolution and growth, 
then finding your voice is not as hard because you're willing to let that voice change and it should change. You should mature with time. You should be learning about things with time. So it, it would just make sense. I don't know. No, you do know. You do know. And it is so true. It is. We evolve with the knowledge, with uh, our lived experiences from being able to share stories with other folks in the community. And it is so important to have people like you in spaces where you are ready to enact that change. Some people are just too scared. And, you know, having fear means that you at least care about it. But if fear is the thing that is holding you back from making that change, then you got to have a conversation with yourself or reach out to somebody that can help you with that. Because I think a lot of us feel more of a repercussion. Like if we speak up and as women, we, if we speak up, we're going to be deemed the bitch. We're going to be deemed bossy. We're going to be deemed like, no, I don't want to work with her because she's difficult to work with. She's always criticizing this. I'm like, no, I'm not criticizing. I am trying to improve this. No, I mean, have you read a uh, pleasure activism? The book? No, I haven't. Um, so in pleasure activism, there is a glossary where um, the author defines what a bitch is. And she says, I love being called a bitch. That is an emphasis of who I am. Yes, I am like, a, I'm strong. Yes, I am powerful. Yes, I may be intimidating. And yes, I'm a bitch. I'm like, yeah, mm -hmm. let's like take back words like those so others cannot use them against us. When they say like, oh, she's bossy. I'm like, oh, so you don't like to take comment from a woman. Right? That's what you are saying. We are enacting change at the local level, more women are running for office at like, city council, for mayors, school board. More women are going to college as first gen. Then more women are applying to graduate programs. We're having more women becoming doctors, medical, and like just academic. We have more women running for high offices. So mm -hmm. um, there seems to be a need for leaders that actually want to represent their communities and know what the fuck they're doing. And Guerreras is all about explicit language as well, because that's how I'm feeling at the moment. So I just want to point out that, you know, like this finding your voice can take many shapes and forms, right? And that, I think that that's something that I want to develop in my dissertation. Because, so there's this book called uh, Weapons of the Week, where chisme is considered a political weapon, where taking more time doing tasks is a political weapon. So I don't want to say that there's only one right way to do this, that yeah. there are many, many ways to do it. So just be true to whatever feels right to you with an emphasis on growth. Mm -hmm. Maybe everything that you do should feel like a little bit risky, but that will change according to who you are and where your position. There's so many voices to be had and I, I encourage everyone to explore what their voice is. And if they can't protest, maybe they can make leaflets or make phone calls or talk to their neighbors, talk to their family, right? There's so many, so many ways to do this. You're absolutely right. And those are the people that we usually forget in movements. Like who are the people printing the leaflets? Who are the people going door to door trying to talk about an issue? Who is having that difficult conversation with their family or their friends about what's happening in the world around them? Who is trying to find, so even finding support is political, politically risky because you're being vulnerable in a moment where should I share this part of myself? Uh, do I feel safe with the person I'm about to share it with or the group that I'm about to share it with? So you're absolutely right. It's all about finding what that voice is and encouraging others to find that voice. Today's episode is brought to you by 
Women also know stuff, and people of color also know stuff. The mission of these incredible organizations is to promote scholars of color and women in political science and serve as an amplifier for the efforts to advance racial and gendered inclusion and diversity in the discipline. A key aspect of their mission is to advance equity that is inclusive of all class backgrounds, gender identities, sexual identities, and institutional contexts. Critically, their goal is to foster cross-institutional collaboration and networking across subfields and rankings, especially for graduate students and early career scholars. They do this through promoting scholarships, celebrating professional wins, and serving as a resource for mentoring efforts in the discipline to resolve issues that arise from the under-representation of people of color and women in political science. And so, Maricruz, I want to ask you, given that Guerreras is a podcast about Latinas, for Latinas, by a Latina, tell us what it means for you to be Latina and a woman from lived experiences, from research, from anything. What does it mean to you to be Maricruz? Well, that's a, that's a loaded question. <laughs> what does it mean to be Maricruz? Well... Yeah, I don't think I've gone through enough therapy sessions to unpack that. <laughs> uh, but I think I think a large part of my identity has been for a really long time nested within the concept of Nepantla um, and Nepantlera, right? Um, and so for those of you who don't know, this is a concept that uh, was really developed by Gloria and Saldua to kind of discuss uh, the pain that comes from living in the in-between, living in between liminal spaces. Um, and, and this was really in regards to like the border experience. Um, and I'm from Palm Springs, born and raised in the Coachella Valley. So like not the border, but this liminal status, this in-between um, is such a constant part of my identity. Right, because I, I never really fit in with other Latino, Latinx kids. I was always kind of like too nerdy and not in a bad way. Like I just, I just had different interests than they did. But then in academia, like I was also the patito feo in academia for a really long time. You know, like maybe I still am la patita fea, but you know, like no, that's not. another. No, you're not patita fea. But, you know, like so much of it is like trying to find where I fit in and, and realizing that I, I don't really fit in into any one place. Right. I'm always like in the in-betweens. But I have learned to see that as an advantage because I belong to so many communities. So I don't have one home. I have many. I have many homes. And that's, that's hard to navigate, right? Because that's a lot of identities to be juggling all the time. And I think I think about them more than any one person does. But, you know, I think that that's what it is. Um, and it's part of my interdisciplinary training, right? Like, I, I'm used to thinking about a million different things. And I think for most people, it would seem chaotic. But I think that there's, there's some order in there, too, right? There are some patterns that still emerge. There's insight to gain and wisdom to gain from all of that thank you that's beautiful and gloria saldua's and cherry moraga's this bridge called my back oh. has been a life-saving piece of literature in my life 
it has been, mm-hmm. like you said, the in-betweens, ni de aquí, ni de allá, it, of not feeling like we fit in even in our spaces because somehow we also ostracize the experience of being Latina in the United States. And for anybody that is wondering what the Maricruz just talked about, what is this book on? It will be on our episode notes after this episode goes live. So don't worry, you can always check out our link in our bio to see all the resources, all the organizations, the books, the articles that we talked about in today's episode. So Maricruz, our last question is, if you could give the Guerreras listening to this episode, three tips on being a woman in academia, of researching immigrants, women, you know, what is the nugget of knowledge that you want other women listening to know about? They're going to come off as really generic, but they're just really true, right? Like you have to be genuine. I can tell you from some of my personal experiences that there are some people who just want to get to know me so that they can get access to other people. And I can tell you that I do not help those people <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, because I can tell. So be genuine, uh, be, be, be like a, a truthful person about your intentions. And there is no shame in saying like, Hey, like I really want to get access person. I, I don't have any other way. Can you, can you like help me out in some way? Like that's fine but pretending to be my best friend so that you can talk to somebody else, I can tell, other people can tell when you're doing that and we don't appreciate it. Mm-hmm. So be truthful, be genuine in your interactions and who you are, and that will go a long way. Uh, so that's nugget one. Nugget two, uh, this one I think I have to relearn often and it's, is important that I feel like I need to relearn different ways to do this, but be kind. Um, it's really hard not to get jaded. Mm. It's really hard not to become cold. Um, and, and it makes sense, right? Like you want to protect yourself. You want to make sure that you do okay. And that is absolutely true. But I think that you can still protect yourself and be kind to others. Be kind in the type of feedback you give be kind with your time, um, not overextend yourself, right? But treat everyone with a, a degree of kindness that you would want, right? Going back to the golden rule, treat others the way you want to be treated. And it's just such an easy thing to forget in academia because we're all so self-involved. Like to say that we're not self-involved would be false. <laughs> um, it's like, stop lying to yourself. <laughs> like. I'm self-involved. It's fine. Like, it's fine. (laughs) But, you know, like, still try to be kind. For my third one, I don't know. Like, this is also a hard one, I think. But be okay with not knowing. Mm. (laughs) Be okay with not knowing. And maybe it's because, like, I'm still in the process of writing my theory and I'm still reading. Uh, And the more I read, the more I continue to feel like... (laughs) I don't know jack shit. Like I will <laughs> never, I don't know anything. And you know, like this is just something that as I read it, just the feeling does not go away. And I, I think that that is okay. Um, and as I continue to read, my research agenda continues to grow. And I, I mean, if you take a look at what my dissertation topic is, it's a behemoth. It is not a small question. 
and it's just going to take it's going to take my entire career, frankly, to answer all of the questions related to my dissertation. And, and I, I think I'm lucky in that I, I feel excited, right, that I don't know all of these, the answer to all of these questions. But I think that that's important to remember, you know, like, it's okay not to know. Like, there will be time to know. There, and that's part of that growth mentality. Thank you so much for coming on my show and sharing your knowledge your and your compassion to these subjects and these topics because women like you are the reason I get so inspired to continue in my route in politics on sharing political knowledge and helping other women find their political voice women like you that continuously network continuously seek support or bridge the gap between multiple worlds are really the backbone of supporting that social capital of women being engaged in the institutions and the networks around them that may not usually be accessible to them, but because of women like you, they are. Like you're not gonna take no for an answer unless it is quite impossible, because I know you. And I appreciate you for having that bone in your body that won't allow you to shut down, which, you know, you need to like eat and drink something other than coffee. Uh, I know you and debatable, debatable, debatable. Coffee still has water in it. So it's yeah. still some form of hydration. But again, thank you so much for being a guest of Guerreras. Guerreras is all about finding your political voice in the movement. And if you don't know what that looks like, that's why I bring women like you, Maricruz, into this conversation. So other women can find their sheroes and your information, all the information of today's episode will be available in the episode notes. Again, thank you for spending your Sunday morning with me. Thank you for making time to talk. Anything else that you'd like Guerreros to know? Yes. Yes. There's one last thing, one last nugget of information. You know, part of my dissertation and my research and the non-academic writing that I do um, and the activist work that I do I hope reminds everyone that even though it may seem like you don't have agency in a situation, you do, right? And that agency can uh, manifest in a lot of different ways, but push back against the narrative, right? That undocumented folk don't have political power, that DACA folk, asylum seekers don't have political power, that you in a marginal position, whatever your position may be, don't have power. You do. At the end of the day, you do. There are always ways for you to push back against the oppressive systems. But keep pushing because you are powerful in so many ways that you have yet to discover. Wonderful part of life, I think. Scary, intimidating. It takes courage, but a life worth living must be courageous, right? A life worth living must be courageous. What a way to wrap this all up. Maricruz, thank you. This is my round of applause for you for being a guest. And again, the work that you're doing, I know I'm not the only one that thanks you and has immense gratitude for what you do. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun.